Welcome to the December 2022 episode of our Bridging the Gaps podcast series, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum, EHFF. I'm Sean O'Connellan. Ta Folcheroif Galer than Fadkraila Dera than Vlian. And I'm Caroline White. In this month's podcast, David Somek of the EHFF and I spoke with Jim Garrison. Jim is the founder of Ubiquity University, whose founding purpose is to develop learning experiences grounded in the world's wisdom traditions, blended with practical, interpersonal and entrepreneurial skills. Jim has a doctorate in philosophical theology from Cambridge University and has been active throughout his life in the anti-war, anti-nuclear, citizen diplomacy and environmental movements. Jim has also worked closely with Mikhail Gorbachev in the State of the World Forum. Since the pandemic began, he has been co-hosting a series of webinars called Humanity Rising. We'll go over now to the interview with Jim. I'm very pleased today to welcome Jim Garrison from across the water, as it were, from the West Coast of America. As listeners will know, I'm David Tomek from the European Health Futures Forum. Caroline from Fasters also is co-hosting. And we wanted to talk to Jim who is the founder of an organization, a virtual organization called Ubiquity University, about a project he's been running now for, I guess, is it three years, Jim? Just about. Called Humanity Rising. Caroline and I have participated in webinars, which happen virtually every day in the last three years. And I guess the reason why we brought Jim to talk to us is the theme is transformation. I think that, uh, as Jim will explain, there's a strong element about transforming society in the Humanity Rising project. But this is also something that at EHFF we're very interested in too. And I think there are aspects of that transformation that also interest Faster. So, Jim, over to you. Thank you, David. And let me begin by thanking both of you, but I think uh, David in particular for all the programs that he and colleagues have convened around European health uh, during the pandemic. I think you must have uh, convened 20, 25 sessions in the end. And I just want to express my deep gratitude for that because during the pandemic, you know, the world came face to face with public health, both in terms of its deficiencies, but also in terms of its promise and its capacities in a way we uh, haven't been confronted uh, in a very, very long time. And David was one of the leaders in that illumination. So I just want to acknowledge that and thank you. And thank you, Carolyn, for coming on our program. I think the genesis of Humanity Rising is really illustrative of your your question around transformation. And so just to recall for a moment, uh, you'll all remember uh, in March of 2020, we'd been hearing about COVID-19. And then all of a sudden, without much ado, the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. And within weeks, all of us were in lockdown. All of us were in enforced social distancing. We were wearing masks. We were in isolation, and essentially the world went into a form of martial law over a virus. And that was such a shocking experience that we all felt traumatized in a fundamental way. We began to be governed by fear and anxiety. But it also led us at Ubiquity University to think, well, what could we do 
you know, where's the opportunity in this crisis? And I think transformation begins with that fundamental awareness, no matter what situation you find yourself in, there's an opportunity there somewhere. And if you track the opportunity vector, you can actually transform the energy that's being generated by the chaos and the anxiety and the fear and the turbulent around you into a coherence that has positive benefit for yourself and the world. And what we did, for example, we just thought <clears throat> if everybody's in isolation, we ought to figure out a way that people can come together. What about Zoom? <laughs> what about uh, offering a Zoom broadcast every day? And initially throughout the whole of 2020, it was seven days a week. So every day for two hours, we came in and people came in from all over the world. We had people registering from over 130 countries. We had tens of thousands of people sign up for the broadcast. We had hundreds of organizations volunteer to be co-sponsors. Uh, and we learned a very important lesson. And that is that not only is the opportunity embedded in the crisis, but the opportunities that are inherent in the crisis are really, in this case, in a in a pandemic where everyone's being isolated, the opportunity is really in radical collaboration. How do we, in lockdown, come together, share visions, share anxieties, share stories, share solutions, and begin a process of radical collaboration out of our respective points of isolation? It's been an extraordinary journey. And it's been one of the most uh, empowering things that I personally have ever done, uh, because every day I'm dealing with people in various nooks and crannies that represent goodness in the world. So I'm surrounded by goodness almost all the time. So as the news gets worse and worse, <laughs> we're, de we're developing humanity rising in all kinds of interesting ways. And it's fundamentally transformational. And I love every moment of it. And it exemplifies what we all need to be doing. Tell us some more detail. I'm always struck by the richness of the material that comes through week on week. Uh, you certainly have explored a lot the inner workings of, of people, uh, their spiritual ideas, their ways of interacting, some of which I guess you from across the pond, we see as a little way out, a little West Coast, <laughs> although, <laughs> although very sincere and in, you know, interesting and different. But do you, uh, as you say, there's a, there's a fundamental thing about goodness, um, about a positive attitude to fellow man and so on. But do you see other sorts of strands emerging from all of that rich material that you feel you've learned something really you know, unexpected or you know, something new? Oh, for sure. Uh, but let me first begin by commenting on your observation that uh, it's across the pond and it's a little bit West Coast. And I would say I, I'm right now in Marin County, north of San Francisco, on the West Coast. Sure. And I do so without any apologies, because I believe that when creativity and novelty emerges, it feels a little bit like the West Coast. It feels a little bit like California. It feels a little bit new age. Mm -hmm. And that's healthy, because that's the novelty. 
And when the novelty emerges, it challenges our old stereotypes and our ways of behaving. And that's been at the heart of Humanity Rising. We've been looking for good ideas, visions, solutions, empowerment all over the world and finding it in all kinds of nooks and crannies. And uh, we deal with science, we deal with politics, we deal with culture, education, uh, we deal with mythology, we deal with spirituality. Uh, we've dealt with the youth crisis because one of the phenomena that have emerged with the pandemic is that in every country in the world, stress factors are going up. People are more anxious, they're more depressed, there's more domestic violence, there's more suicides, there's more drugs, there's more crime. All kinds of bad things are happening around the world out of our isolation and out of this culture of, of fear. And so what Humanity Rising has done <clears throat> is allow whoever is speaking to speak their truth without judgment. That's very important for our ethos. And I would say another very important aspect, uh, David, for our ethos and the reason why we've been so successful is we've tried to bring in world events as they're taking place. So when we started in May 2020, uh, your listeners may recall, that was when George Floyd uh, was killed in Minneapolis. And that death, you know, I can't breathe, I can't breathe at a moment when because of the pandemic, we were all having respiratory issues, we couldn't breathe, went all over the world. And so at Humanity Rising, we began to track it. And that allowed us to do all kinds of sessions on racism on colonialism. Uh, we had a whole week on the Black American male uh, experience. And we did it again just a few months ago. Uh, you may remember in September, uh, on 16th of September, Masa Amini, the young uh, Iranian woman, 22 years old, was beaten to death by the morality police because she didn't have her headgear on, her hijab on correctly. They beat her to death. Well, that like George Floyd's, just reverberated all over the world and really changed consciousness about Iran. Well, we started to talk about it. And one of our colleagues, uh, uh, Banamsheh Sayyad, is from Iran. Her whole family was expelled, and she's been living as an expatriate uh, for the last 40 years. She came on to Humanity Rising, and we connected into Iran. People in Iran were watching our sessions on what was going on. Uh, and we developed a whole week summit on Iran and the culture of Persia. And we're bringing in uh, as much awareness as we could that this was unprecedented, what was happening in Iran, because it's the first time, certainly in modern history, where young women have ignited a revolutionary movement. And then you can see how that spread into China. You know, the, in Iran and in China, the young people, they're, they're not coming out as Marxists or fascists or ideologues. They're simply demanding the right to be human beings and to live simply and humanely as, as free individuals on this earth at this time. That's the challenge they're making to their governments. And so humanity rising is in the, is in the middle of all that mix, honoring novelty as it emerges and bringing uh, current events into our awareness 
within the context of historical, political, and scientific context so we can understand more deeply what it is that's taking place. But all within this ethos with which I started, where are the opportunities here? Where is the solution vector? And we believe that if you do this with sufficient passion in the spirit of radical collaboration, that uh, somehow in some way that we can't imagine, a meta solution is going to emerge that's going to change things fundamentally. I absolutely admire your process, but my only comment would be about context. You've explained how uh, the pandemic, the shutdown, uh, spurred you to, to do this. But there is a thing about history, isn't there? If you take Iran, what I remember vividly, uh, and after all, it's just over 10 years ago, isn't it? It was the Arab Spring, which again was very dramatic. People became very, very excited about it. I was at a, an Oxford Scenarios meeting where people were all firing off, saying how it could change the way things happen. And within two or three years, somehow to, to, it had disappeared in a way. It never disappeared completely, but it wasn't as dramatic as people felt it might be. And yet there is continuing process going on, isn't there, about a, a change. Again, the other thing I wanted to pick up with you is the you put your finger on the climate of fear and how it's affected people. But my take on this is that existed before. It was one of the most depressing things for me as an older person about the last maybe 30 years that things have got become... I remember the, the huge, maybe, <laughs> yeah, the youngsters of us, we were youngsters in the 60s, enthusiasm the 60s had for change anything was possible you know man on the moon and all that the iron curtain coming down and so on and yet now it feels so different and so negative so i think it's absolutely wonderful the idea of one thing the opportunity in the humanity rising exercise is to bring out the fact that it isn't all bad you know people are fundamentally good at least most of us, we hope. And bringing it together makes us stronger. I mean, that's part of it, isn't it? But the other theme I wanted to bring in, and I'm, I'm sure we can return to that if we have time, but is the environment. I mean, you're, you've positioned yourself in front of a forest, which is a lovely thing to do. And uh, that, of course, is, is something that be, has been preoccupying people for some years now. And rightly so. Seems, again, somehow a sort of consequence it was it's one of these things isn't it where we've been sleepwalking into a crisis so even in the 60s perhaps we were contributing to it but not really aware and it's come to us very hard in the last 10 years that we really have done something that's got to it's urgently needs uh, doing something about that's also something that's featured in your your mm -hmm. work i think let me just start, uh, David, with just a comment on this notion of Arab Spring in the 1960s, because I think that's very important point to make. And I'm one of the baby boomers. I came of age during the late 1960s, 1970s. I was one of the activists against the Vietnam War. We engaged in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was the flower children. It was all things were possible. And then it didn't happen. Kennedys were assassinated, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Arab Spring. And you're right, there's been these spasms like Tiananmen Square, where the human spirit sticks its head above 
the water only to have it cut off by the reactionary forces. But there's something irrepressible about the revolutionary spirit for a better world. And I think it's important and it gives me solace to, to know that in evolution, there are no straight lines, that evolution meanders. Uh, evolution can take place almost randomly, apparently. And uh, so that sometimes you take one step backward, two steps back, a step sideways. But I agree passionately with Martin Luther King that in the end, the arc of justice is bending toward the future in a way that is ultimately redemptive. And that to me is a is a powerful impetus and an understanding for what we need to do. Now, in terms of your question about the environment, I, I'd like to make the following statement. In my view, the situation in the world today is more dangerous than it's ever been in my lifetime. And I want to say that in the following way. First, there's climate. And we have transitioned from global warming to climate change. And I believe in the last several years, we've transitioned from climate change to climate disaster. And that's why the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres have said we are now in code red. We are now facing a climate hell, as he put it a few weeks ago at COP27. And so we all need to take that in, that it's no longer avoidable we are now in rising ecological turbulence that is shaking the foundations of human technical culture. And we are now, as Gutierrez has said, we're now in a situation where our governments can no longer protect us against the ravages of nature. And we all need to take that in. What makes this so dangerous is right at the moment when we need international cooperation to solve this problem, we've gone to war. And because of the war in Ukraine, because of the relentless pressure of the United States and NATO to go increasingly to the east and Russia's invasion of eastern and southern Ukraine to secure a land bridge into Crimea and to the Black Sea, what we're now doing is we're deconstructing the very global infrastructure that we need to solve the climate disaster. And the fact that Ukraine continues to incrementally escalate, and now there are U.S. troops in Lithuania, active and ready within an offensive capacity on the Russian border. We now have a danger of nuclear exchange that hasn't been present in the world since 1962. And for those of you who know what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis for, in 1962, we almost went to nuclear war. And had it not been for the American ambassador to the UN, Louis Stevenson and Robert Kennedy, John Kennedy may have succumbed to the pressures of the Pentagon and the State Department and the military industrial complex to go into nuclear exchange. Imagine if that had happened. The world that we know today would not have existed. And we're coming up to one of those moments where we all in my view, need to really pay attention to what's going on because we're deconstructing the global infrastructure at a moment when we should be embracing the Russians, embracing the Chinese, embracing each other for a common cooperative effort to deal with 
a runaway climate. And the fact that we are not, and climate has essentially been taken off the table, is a danger that almost can't be overestimated. And I think we all need to take it in. And it's a striking to me that Ukraine is the first war in my lifetime where there's been no protest movement. There's been no peace movement. And there's not time to go on to it, but I, I, it's worth another podcast just to go into the background of Ukraine. But this is as, as much or more about U.S. expansionism and imperialism than it is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's true that Putin invaded. And the question you need to ask yourself is why did he do that? He did it because the United States, since 1996, has been pushing NATO eastward in a highly militarized and aggressive manner, which violated the basic agreement that Gorbachev had with President Bush and Margaret Thatcher in England and and Helmut Kohl in Germany, that if the Soviet Union withdrew its forces from Eastern Europe, let Berlin go back to Germany and allow Germany to be reunited, the US and NATO would not expand to the east. We broke that agreement, and now we have war. And that is a potential catastrophe that we all need to take in. And I believe that's the impetus for organizations like you two represent Humanity Rising. The people of the world, this is the other point that I want to make, what the progressive movement concluded with COP26 last year in Glasgow where for the 26th year in the world, the governments basically came together for what Greta Thunberg called blah, 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 is that the governments aren't going to solve this. The people have to somehow come together in a renewed way to take accountability for doing what the governments continue to refuse to do. And that's at the heart of humanity rising, not as an organization, not as a broadcast, But can we, in this moment of duress, but also opportunity, take the accountabilities and animate what we're doing in the world in a way that leads the governments, leads the corporations who are now rapaciously exploiting both human communities uh, and the larger ecosystem? I mean, there's so much we could carry on with this, <laughs> uh, Jim. I mean, I know, for example, that when you refer to Gorbachev, of course, you have some personal experience. <laughs> I was there, yes. <laughs> right. And in fact, you and he were involved in an organization, weren't you? Um, yeah, I, I met Mr. Gorbachev in late 1991 before he resigned. I happened to be the last foreigner that he received in his Kremlin office before he resigned. I, I knew him well and then embarked on a 10-year relationship with him through an organization called the State of the World Forum, where we convene leadership groups all over the world under the motto of transforming conversations that matter into actions that make a difference. That's why we're here. That's why Humanity Rising is here. That's why you're here in your Health Future Forum and, and Fiesta, Carolyn. It's what we have yet to do, and I believe that if we do it with a next level of acuity and impact, we can actually begin to create changes that the governments will respond to. What I find delightful talking to you always, Jim, is your enthusiasm and positive thinking. I remember, like you, I remember 
Cuba, I was in my very first term at Oxford, and we would sit in our you know room together, drinking horrible Nescafe, and really terrified about what was going to happen next. We mm. felt helpless. We did march in the street, but felt uh, very helpless, really. Um, but the fact is, you know, life goes on, isn't it, one way or the other? And um, I think we have to be positive. But look, I'm just conscious, looking at the clock, we've got a few minutes, but Caroline, you've been patiently sitting there listening to these two old folk talking about stuff that does matter. But uh, do you want to have, uh, would you like to come in with something? Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it's very, it's all very interesting. And the experience with Gorbachev and, and indeed Cuba, Cuba crisis, it's all very interesting. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned about young people being involved in protest movements that also made me think again about uh, Greta Thunberg and, and just the whole phenomenon of youth becoming engaged in environmental action and environmental activism. And we've been helping some people from the Global South, some some youth uh, at the most recent COP, the one in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. And their reports are just so moving, I find. I mean, we just got them reports uh, last week and we've just put them on the website, the FASTA site. And so there were three people from Brazil, one from Pakistan, one from India. As you can imagine, the one from Pakistan it's, they're in situation red so now, obviously, and but they're so eloquent, and I mean, it's very clear what they think is needed, and there are things that I would strongly agree with, but it really ties in with what you're saying, you know, a need for global cooperation and to focus on the real priorities, you know, the environmental crisis. Well, you're making a very important comment, I think, uh, Carolyn, just to build on it for a moment, around youth activism. And we had our own coverage of COP in Sharm el-Sheikh. And every day we had a different youth group from around the world talking about what they were doing in the domain of climate activism. We partnered with Oz Green and uh, Australia and the Youth Leading the World Global Network. And I think that's another aspect of, of optimism is to just to see the extraordinary capacities. I mean, Greta, for a start, 12 years old, starting out her career in a way that kind of stopped the world. I mean, we're seeing a maturity, I would say, on the part of our young people that is uh, deeply inspiring and uh, I believe needs to be supported in every possible way that we can as we try to navigate our way through this thicket. So thank you for that comment. And I agree. I think that we... In my organization, for example, we've tried to engage uh, young people uh, because we tend to be older. We've got a lot of experience in health and related things. And sitting down, talking to young people, I guess their feeling is, well, your time is past now. <laughs> it's our time, but we'll come and we'll come and pick your brain sometimes if you don't mind. And I think that's how it should be, isn't it? And well, as Sue Lennox put it, he said she put it beautifully. She said. Our task is just simply to walk beside them, not to lead them, not even really to mentor them because they're mentoring us. But we as elders can walk beside them in a supportive, nurturing way so that when they do need uh, a little history or they do need some wise counsel on tactics and strategy, we're available to them. I think that's a that was a nice metaphor that we we use during our cop coverage. I think that's a very good metaphor. I, I love that too. 
look um i'm conscious that you you have t limited time we do too we could talk for another half hour easily but uh, jim i'm so grateful uh, for you to give us some time uh, and and to hear your experience and let's have maybe another opportunity to arise sure. anytime Thank it's a pleasure you. that was jim garrison of ubiquity university speaking with david somek and myself many thanks to jim for his participation and, as usual, to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the link with your friends and colleagues. Best wishes to all for 2023, and we hope to see you then. Ganari Gugalliv, Sublin Ur Amach Rowing.